and welcome to an episode of Fashion Talks, the podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. I'm your host, Donna Bishop, and we are live at Toronto Fashion Week here in Yorkville Village. Yeah, woohoo! Yes, here we are. And I am just delighted to be joined today by Dr. Alexandra Palmer, the ROM's Nora Yvonne Fashion Costume Curator. Uh, she is a leading global authority on Christian Dior. Her award-winning book, Dior, A New Look, A New Enterprise, is a resource that even archivists at the House of Dior headquarters in Paris refer to as their Bible. And now she's working on another book on Dior to be published later this year, which explores the transformational decade that followed the second end of the, or the, end of the Second World War, pardon me. And it is because of curators such as Alexandra who are bringing together world-class collections and important research that the ROM is able to produce groundbreaking exhibits such as Christian Dior and the Iris Van Herpen Transforming Fashion. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. And, and I will say that that is but a tip of the iceberg of Alexandra's biography. So we're going to learn a little bit more about that. Um, Alexandra, how did you get involved in, in, the, in the cultural side of, of fashion, such as it is? And are, are you involved with other institutions? You, you're a professor as well, are you not? Yes, I, the, a lot of ROM professors are cross-appointed through the university. So I'm cross-appointed in art history and I teach a fourth year course called about fashion <laughs> history using objects in the ROM and it's a very special course um, to fourth year students. And I got into this field um, that wasn't a field when I started, I sort of had to make it up. I studied art history at the University of Toronto and I, in hindsight I see that I took all the courses that weren't formal art history so I took courses, all the courses that were taught at the ROM in decorative <laughs> arts and, and uh, sat in the armor court and everything. And um, then when I graduated, I wanted to study fashion history. And the only place to do that was at the Courtauld in London, the art history um, school as a master's. And then uh, just as I was sort of looking around, a new program opened up in New York at, through NYU mm -hmm. and was taught at the Costume Institute at the Met. So I was one of the first into that and moved to New York and did that master's and worked in New York and ultimately did a whole bunch of things and ended up getting a, a PhD and teaching in Canada and, and working at the Rome. And what is it that interests you about fashion? Because you've got a very, I don't want to call it a, a niche perspective per se, but it's not, you know, you're not a designer, you're taking a very uh, a deep dive into the industry. What is it that got you interested about it? Um, well, it's interesting. When I was studying art history, I loved it because they're beautiful paintings and I was very interested in architectural history and I might have been an architectural historian. I was sort of going that way and there were no history of photography classes. There wasn't even barely uh, feminism, no gender studies. So it was a very different world mm -hmm. um, in terms of academics. And as soon as I got to the Costume Institute and we started looking at many of the same paintings and certainly in the galleries at the Met, and I could actually look at the clothes and start really mm -hmm. diving into that, it all made much more sense. And I think um, one of my key drivers is, is people and what we do in the world and how we pass through the world and what 
motivates us to make art and design and how do we mediate that and fashion's extremely responsive so you know if you want to redo your house um, that's a bit more of a project but fashion you can try it on and you can take it off uh, so it's it's a very immediate response to things that are happening in our world I, I completely agree with you and I think it must be such a joy to be working at the ROM because the collection there is so massive. Like I was delighted but surprised to learn that the ROM has the third largest collection of fashion and textiles in the world. Yeah, the, the collection's over 55,000 pieces and it's worldwide and across time. And it was collected, uh, fashion has always, and textiles have always been part of the ROM since its inception, the founding director Corelli collected, he was an archaeologist amongst many other things. He was a wild shopper and he'd always see what the V&A had and they had a really good lace collection so he wanted one and they had this dress gallery that was really successful so he wanted one. And I love it, he was a secret shopper amongst them. He was not very <laughs> secret. He'd buy things and then find someone to pay for them later. <laughs> and um, uh, he he really wanted uh, Canada to have a great institute of art, science, design, and culture for the public, for people to learn around their p about their past, and for designers, so that people had models of so-called good design and could, didn't have to go somewhere else to see um, what was going on and, and could really produce very good industrial design, fashion design, and he spoke about that a lot. He was very interesting. Well, and we've got some slides here from the collection that I want to make sure that we, we reference for everyone here. Can you tell us a little bit about, about the feather tunic we're looking at here? This is part of the ROMS collection, I, I imagine? Yes, everything in these images is. So this is a, a, a incredibly beautiful feather tunic. It's about four feet wide and about two, uh, four feet long, two feet wide, completely covered with these uh, uh, macaw feathers that they would have to gather in the Amazon. Um, knotted and tied on. When Jeannie Becker saw it was in our exhibition big, she said, my goodness, this is haute couture. And it really was yeah. haute couture um, in, uh, in Peru. Um, around, you know, 1,000, very, very, very early. And these, these things survive, very fortunately. So we have things like this, and then we have, say, 1,900 feather fans that you can compare it to. Or um, this example here, a, a sequin evening dress from 2004, actually by uh, Tom Ford for Yves Saint Laurent mm. when, when he was doing that stint. Um, uh, a dress that is completely covered in yellow sequins and sort of Pepto-Bismol pink at the bottom mm. um, and takes directly from the imperial dragon thrones all the imagery kind of but not quite because it's very tailored, like mm. the Cheong Sam, and, and it references all of these kind of East Saint China chic things that he was doing as well. So um, we like objects like this uh, that link directly to other kinds of the collections. I, I think the next slide is actually an imperial robe. Here we go. So this is uh, the emperor's robe, which has five claws, that's how you know very, very, very coded fashion. It's just beautiful. The imperial court it is amazing. <laughs> and it is beautifully woven um, and with this very, very uh, complicated symbology where the emperor is the center of the universe and there's uh, waves and mountains and sea and the celestial world around him in the clouds and the dragon. So uh, 
this, um, and we have one of the great collections of, of these robes, actually the um, movie, The Last Emperor, they came to the ROM to study oh, our, yes, our yeah. clothes. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, we had very good scholarship on it by John Vollmer, who really kind of changed the, the, the shifting of that. So these kinds of things that make links across time, across culture, that's really what our strength is in, in our collection, I think. Well, and I, and I love that you're talking about those cross sections because we all wear clothes, of course, and I, I would hope. Um, and I, 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 so I think everyone must be a little bit dangerous. Like, because we're so familiar with a garment, does it, does it impact our lens of looking at things in a cultural way sometimes because we kind of take it for granted because it's, it's something we have with us all the time? Well, th there's been a, a long debate um, that hopefully is over now about does fashion belong in the museum? Certainly when the Armani show was at the um, uh, Guggenheim and things like that. Uh, but fashion has always been part of the ROM and it's part of our, our and textiles, it's part of our culture, it's part of who we are. And, um, uh, and it's not separate from any other field of decorative arts. And certainly there's huge intersections, for instance, in printing um, the print world and the printed textile world and the interior world all come together, wallpaper. Um, all, they all, all touch each other. All, you need technology, you know, and often fashion is a big driver of technology and new ideas and new developments. And, um, you know, influence. Um, oh, here's here's a, a wonderful image that was uh, two pieces that were in, again, that exhibition big. A man's postillion boot, which is a, a boot that a man would wear when he's riding astride um, outside in a carriage and you have um, uh, the other horse there and all the metal and trappings from the carriage. Right. So this boot is like a, um, a piece of concrete, basically, he sits in. Um, so he doesn't get crushed between the other horse and the carriage and he's sitting out there in the freezing cold while the rich people are inside. Um, Armor think of sort of Marie foot. Antoinette, you know, think of that. And, um, and then a little baby, a uh, tiny little soft shoe, um, about three or four, in three inches. Um, that's a, a shoe for a, a woman's bound foot in China. Um, a, another uh, very elite kind of thing from the late 19th century. Um, but they're both shoes. They're both different ways of looking at things. I think the postillion boot is really rather kind of Alexander McQueen. Mm. Um, and. Sure. Uh, it's these contrasts and that really are interesting, I think, to like, how did we come up with any of this stuff? Well, and, um, and the contrast between the two and also just the, the cultural implications of, of the woman's shoe and how we can sort of look at, you know, the role of the woman in women's rights and, and in, in China specifically, since it, that's where the shoe is from, but that's, that's the impetus for a larger cultural discussion. Oh, absolutely or the fact that you have a man outside riding on a carriage and kneading this thing so he doesn't crush his, you know, his other leg. Um, it's extraordinary. Now, the thing, this is from Izzy Camilleri's adaptive uh, clothing exhibit. And the thing I love about this exhibit is it's a real opportunity for you to share how historical techniques are still a part of, of contemporary techniques. Can you tell us a bit about this exhibit and, and what was so exciting about it? Uh, yes, this exhibition, Fashion Follows Forms Designed for Sitting, was one I curated and, and I, I 
must say it was the hardest exhibition I've ever done. In, um, really? Because uh, what you're showing is uh, clothes that are not fancy. Like if you put out the Yves Saint Laurent fantastically sparkly dress, people say, wow, because it's really amazing. But what I was trying to show was a man's suit, a white shirt, a denim skirt, like really ordinary kind of gap basics. And that's what Izzy did. She created through Izzy Adaptive this line of clothing that gave uh, people who were in, in wheelchairs uh, basics, which they didn't have. And it's, it's not only the design and the cut, but it's also how you put them on. Everything about it was incredibly well thought out. And uh, I was completely knocked over when I went into her store uh, really by mistake in the junction I was looked at this actually it was the leather jacket that took me into the shop mm. and then she said oh hi you you may not you know think you're in a normal fashion shop but this is you know a, a shop for people who use wheelchairs and I was completely bowled over uh, I knew Izzy before from her warmer and great life in Well, Canadian I was about fashion. to say, for people who are, who are here and possibly who are listening who aren't familiar with Izzy Camilleri, she is an illustrious designer mm -hmm. in the, you know, I kind of make air quotes, traditional fashion world with an enormous career in high fashion and dressing celebrities and, and did have a, a, a whole side of her before she went into this incredibly important direction. Yeah, and she really got into this by mistake um, because Barbara Turnbull, the journalist, asked who, who was uh, a kind of celebrity in some ways because she'd been shot when she was 17 in this 7-Eleven um, terrible thing um, and ended up being a journalist at the Toronto Star and was a real um, advocate for people with disabilities in general. And um, she wanted a coat that she could wear um, when it was cold and that she could go to her office in the Star and someone could take off for her rather than being stuck in these things all day long because of she didn't course. have a caregiver who could physically move her and do all this stuff. So um, what she was asking for was seen like everyone should be able to have that. Mm. So then Izzy became very engaged in, in uh, this idea of creating a line um, for people and, and she did. So her, her patterns are very intriguing and it's very the sort of R&D what she did is rethinking because fashion is for standing people whether you're wearing a sarong, whether you're wearing a sari, whether you're wearing anything in the 18th century. Um, I teach a course on the history of trousers because I'm very interested in tailoring and trousers are this very complicated thing that you're supposed to look really sexy in when you're standing up and yet you want to sit down and you need all this space at, in your bum to sit without yeah. ripping them. <laughs> and now we have spandex. Uh, Yay spandex. So, <laughs> and it took hundreds of years for tailors to really develop that. And Izzy's patterns really reminded me of 18th century men's breeches with these very big seats that accommodate the bum. Um, but the, in the 18th century, the men wore tailcoats to cover that and their oh, tailcoats cool. were split so they could ride astride and they needed to sit, they needed to ride astride, they demanded clothes that they could move in. Um, so I Izzy had just kind of rethought what it is that, that people need and really changed her cuts. And so part of the show included things like the 18th century men's pants or this uh, woman's three-piece riding habit, um, which is another thing designed for sitting in um, it's a side saddle ensemble. Um, it has 
from the late 19th century, has a jacket, a vest, a crazy side saddle skirt that in this picture is draped, but you would wear it and it would all look perfect when you're on the horse. So everything is designed so you look perfect when you're on the horse. It's just, how do you get on the horse? And then they even invented these trousers, which you would never have seen, because the problem was what happens if you fall off the horse and are people going to see your legs or that you even have legs? Um, going through and, all the options, and all so the situations. These are all like cultural, social cultural constructions of problem solving about sitting yeah. and, and things like that that have nothing really. I mean, it's functional, yes, because you have to sit side saddle, which is really hard, by yeah. the way, um, on a horse and balance and look perfect. So, but what Izzy was doing was, you know, for people who didn't have options, it wasn't a cultural construction. It's something that our culture had forgotten, these people. And she was really uh, addressing it in a very real and a very brilliant, brilliant, brilliant design-wise way. Well, so and I love that when she was like getting back to that leather mm -hmm. jacket, it was not void of the of the style or the the constructs of the aesthetic that that we would want. I think so often we imagine that if it's something for there's an invisibility that often yes. gets assumed. And for her to take that away was another important statement she was making. Oh, she was making cool clothes. And the leather jacket is, um, it zips off on both sides. So it's easy for someone to get it in and, and on and off. The way the lining is, is it slides on very easily. The belt is also because a lot of people um, who, who use wheelchairs need to be belted in. Right. Um, so it covers that. So really, and it's not high in the back. You don't, doesn't sit under your um, bum, which you can't feel. And you may get a sore, and that is actually very life-threatening. So it's kind of like, you know, fashion kills. And it's um, very, very carefully thought out. And it's, it's something that I had never thought about, and I was rather appalled. I'd never yeah. been taught about. I, it, it, it seems so, so basic. So I was very proud to... Um, to do that exhibition at the ROM, but it was very a very hard exhibition because I was showing sort of uh, uninspired clothes in one yeah. way, but very inspired, and it's really about uh, R&D. So we showed the same piece standing and sitting, and it, then it, when it's standing, it's sort of messed up, and it looks like Ray Kawakubo or something kind of cool, and then you really see what it is about the design that is clever. Well, and she was such ahead of her time in that regard as well, because this, this wasn't like something you did last year. This was several years ago that yes. this exhibit happened. Yes. And now we see other labels bringing out adaptive clothing and whatnot. So mm -hmm. she was a real, a real leader Absol in that regard. Yeah. Some of the other um, fashion exhibits is last year you had a wonderful Dior exhibit. And Christian Dior, I think we can kind of agree, is a household name. So even yes. if you are not you know, into fashion, I'm making air quotes per se, you certainly have heard of Christian Dior. Well, Christian D-I-O-R was in fact the name of uh, the solving for a crossword puzzle. And the question was, who is a French fashion designer? <laughs> yes, so it, as mainstream as it gets, right? If my grandmother can do it in the Sunday crossword. What were some of the things that made this Dior exhibit really special? Like the clothes were just spectacular, but what else was really gratifying about putting that exhibit together? Um, well, the exhibition, uh, was on the years 1947 to 1957, the year when Monsieur Dior founded the house to when he died very unexpectedly. 
the ROM has a wonderful collection of dresses from this early period given by Torontonians, um, many of whom I interviewed over the years and talked to and asked them where they wore it, where they got it. I had, oh, I'd also spoken to the buyers who sold it. And um, so we know a lot about not only the fabulous clothes, but where they went, why they were important, that it wasn't suitable for certain occasions in Toronto. Which was so wonderful. I remember mm -hmm. going to the exhibit because it showed that the, the garments don't exist in a vacuum. Like mm -hmm. they are, they, they, they're part of history because they exist in the moments that we take them to, whether it be a, a personal milestone or a, a political party or some sort of cultural moment. It gave such beautiful context beyond just how the clothes were made in that exhibit. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm, it was the first show I've actually done on a single designer, because um, usually I'm more interested in fashion with a, a small F. And, right. um, <coughs> uh, but I was also very interested in, in talking about the women who wore it, how, on all the people who made it. So I tried to identify as many of the makers, both, and with Christian Dior archives, you can do this, you know, who made it in the atelier, who was the mannequin, who it was made for, because it had to be made to measure, who was the embroiderer often, who was the manufacturer of the textile. So it's this very large world of fashion um, that intersects with many people. So while the name Christian Dior is on the label, um, you know, there's actually about a hundred other people who Absolutely. got it to there. And then there's the store, the whole Renfrew that bought it and sold it to Mrs. Boylan, who was on the best dress list. And, and it sort of goes on. So that sort of, um, those, those interweavings are, are what I find really interesting. I remember hearing at a talk at the ROM when the, when the exhibit was on that there are still a few women, mostly, who worked in Dior's atelier that still go to the chapel on the anniversary of his death. <laughs> yes. Like, what, what an incredible, like, we kind of think, oh, Christian Dior, la-di-da-di-da, like, rich, fancy, fancy designer, but it, he, was such a, he was such a maker, like, he impacted the livelihood of so many people, and, and we don't hear about that so often. Well, he, he was very uh, cognizant of his role. I mean, he was immediately very successful, much to his surprise. Mm. Um, and he was a brilliant marketer, and he had uh, deep pockets behind him from Marcel Boussat. And, uh, but he cleverly positioned himself for a post-war economy um, with a huge company and, and controlled their branding by licensing their products and making sure that Christian Dior products were only sold in you know, so-called approved places. Um, and and he, you know, he, taught, he wrote a lot about um, himself and his business, but he, you know, he was very cognizant too that all the makers and the people in Rouen and Rebou and all these places relied on him for the beading, for their embroidery, for their ribbons, for their buttons, for, he knew that. And so, you know, there was one dress in our exhibition, for instance, that is about ribbons. And he, that dress, I'm pretty sure he made to support the ribbon industry. That's amazing. And then, mm -hmm. of course, there's the Dior new look as well, which has such cultural significance mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, post-World War II and whatnot. I remember there being quite a few of those pieces in the, in the yes, exhibit Yes, and well. that was sort of the astonishing thing was his, his absolutely, uh, the, the Canadian prices and wartime uh, 
Trade Board Commission, which regulated fashion and textiles and metal, like zippers and buttons and all those things during the war, Second World War, which was a government controlled, um, said no cloth on cloth. Uh, skirts had to be a certain width, they had to be a certain length, men's pants couldn't have turn-ups, they couldn't have extra pockets. Mm. And so what Dior went and did was absolutely the antithesis of that. <laughs> really long <laughs> skirts and lots of buttons and five pockets on one, things all different, made, made in a different way and fabulously complicated and expensive. Mm. So, I mean, his clothes were really astonishing. And equally astonishing is Iris Van Herpen for very different <laughs> reasons. And I love that her exhibit you paired with Philip Beasley, the architect. Can you talk a bit about how that partnership came to be? Like, I find the relationship between fashion and architecture fascinating. And so many designers that I've had the pleasure of speaking with have a, have a background in architecture. Mm -hmm. And this is about transforming fashion. How do you see Iris transforming fashion? Well, Iris van Her Herpen is a very interesting contemporary designer. She's Dutch. And um, she's actually an honorary member of the Champs Syndicale, which is uh, extremely rare. And uh, sh she's not a household name because she doesn't have a perfume. She doesn't really do ready-to-wear. Um, and she makes these extraordinary clothes that are they're shown in Paris. And yes, you can see them online, but do come to the ROM to see them because they are it's completely different in real life. Um, and she is a very big thinker and she's interested in large um, concepts so she'll have a, um, a theme uh, the theme that for this 10th year her 10th year anniversary was aeroform and it was about this intersection of air water and um, how could she portray those things in, in clothes I mean she sets herself kind of impossible missions yeah um, and then, uh, because she's such a creative person, she collaborates a lot with different artists uh, around the world. And she, uh, one of her collections was about Philip Beasley's work, which she'd seen online, but she hadn't actually met mm. Philip. And Philip is a Canadian architect who works in Toronto with a big group of people. He teaches at um, University of Waterloo. And he's interested in sentient architecture. He's interested in um, the future of architecture and how we could actually design our world and could architecture respond to us and, and could it be more organic. Um, and uh, so then after that they met and then they totally clicked and have been working together ever since um, on and off for various collections with Philip making the textile sort of quote unquote mm -hmm. because in this case the dress that we ended up with was zinc. Oh um, my. Steel coated zinc. Uh, that is laser cut in a pattern they developed together um, in Philip's studio here in Toronto. Then those samples are sent to um, uh, Amsterdam where they are then turned in, because it's easier if they're sent flat. Mm. And then they're turned into these sort of domes. So this is the dome dress over these um, shapes. And then they're all put together by hand. So it's like 240 hours of handwork. So while these clothes look like they sort of magically appeared. Um, it's really her work with developing ideas, developing textiles, using another dress is made out of uh, a kind of acrylic plastic where she um, manipulates with a, a hot air gun and pliers so it looks like water. Mm. Um, she's used umbrella spokes. She uses very, very unusual material and so her uh, relationship with Philip is really founded on this exploration of materials, shapes, ideas and pushing our modern world forward 
and it intersects with Philip's work because who's also has a, a position in, in the um, gallery uh, because his, his idea about architecture and design is that we need to have this more organic shape and it's a, it should be a back and forth relationship. So you don't just plant a building and make it really, really solid and um, hope that the wind won't blow it down. Mm. You design a building that responds to the wind that has incredibly strong tensile structure but is kind of extruded and has zero waste. So all these ideas which really are um, pushing us into the future, and these people are the future. Absolutely. Well, and, and you mentioned something earlier that I want to just touch on a little bit, is you said, you know, hopefully the conversation of what fashion, uh, whether fashion belongs in our museums is one that is a moot point. And I recall when you were being interviewed um, during the Dior exhibit on one of our beloved morning radio shows, I'm not going to say which one, <laughs> um, but the, the interviewer asked you if, if you tried on the clothes before they got put on display in the exhibit. And I wanted to reach through the radio and like wring his neck. But so I think there is still a little bit of that. The, the answer is the, no. Yeah, exactly. So in case anyone was wondering. Because our job in the museum is to um, preserve the clothes for as long as possible. And um, every, every period is its own shape. And, it's, and every clothes, it, they, they have, you know, literally the DNA and the shape. And the, and the history of fashion in the West is a history of corseted forms and or bodybuilding or plastic surgery now. Oh, again. yeah. So... Um, you know, we are not all, one size does not fit all. Absolutely. <laughs> what, what I'd like to ask you, just getting back to that, is what are some of the things you've been blessed to hear people say after they've been to one of these exhibits, after they've been to Izzy's or the, the, or the Christian Dior or the Iris? Have you had a chance to hear feedback from people that kind of helps dispel the why, the, the why, what is it doing here, or that gives you that kind of lift of, yes, we, I know this is important? Right, well, one of the things about doing um, exhibitions in the museum is that you're dealing with uh, sculptural kinetic forms that are static mm -hmm. in the museum. So they're not animated either by a person who's charming or beautiful or moving. So um, people, the good thing about fashion is people respond to it because they understand it, but often they say, well, you know, I'd like it better if it was in blue, I'd look yeah. better in it. And the point is that I don't really care if you'd look better in it in blue. I want you to look at it and think about the maker or what it was or how you got those silhouettes or some kind of cultural um, meaning to it that uh, moves you beyond yourself and makes you think about fashion in a different way, whether it's about technology, trade winds, um, appropriation of culture or borrowing of culture or back and forth of culture. Um, so... Uh, the exhibition that we're working on now, uh, my colleague Dr. Sarah Fee is the, the uh, curator for this, is on uh, chintz, which is Indian printed and painted cotton that changed the world. And what was, inc and this was luxury, this was putting the Lyon silk industry out of business in the 18th century. People were absolutely apoplectic about this stuff coming in. There were embargoes of it, they were burning it in the streets. It was big money, that's always what counts. And um, even even back in the 1700s, because it was cotton yeah. that was not in the in our in our Western world, and it was washable. And they were masters of dye, masters of chemistry, ways of putting color on, ways of keeping the color on, and mixing colors that we just didn't have that knowledge. So this is um, 
you know, it was threatening, as all new things are threatening, digital technology is threatening, and Iris has kind of harnessed that to some degree, but is proposing ways of using it. Um, and just because you can print something at home on a 3D printer doesn't mean it's necessarily good design or useful or whatever. <laughs> you can just because just you can do it doesn't make it valuable. How do you, un like you, you've mentioned here, you know, the, there's issues of appropriation or borrowing or trade or, or economics. How do you unpack that all to, to, to weave that all together in an exhibit where most people come in and say, oh, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful dress. Like that's a, that's a tall order in order to incorporate it's all of those incredibly valid and important right. elements. Well, exhibits are actually very limiting formats. They're a visual format. You have to have a clear storyline to get from A to B. And um, I think if you come out with one or two new ideas and ways of thinking, the curator has done a good job. Um, to really explore ideas in depth, you need to read. You need to read around it, and that's why publications are really important. Um, and, you know, one, one exhibit, I have all the exhibits that I probably never will do, but you're always <laughs> dreaming them up, um, you know, is really with one object and kind of exploding it in 25 different ways and having all those stories around it. Um, because every object does tell a story, and every object, um, you know, in this exhibition, it's, it has to say this. We're talking about printing. In this exhibition, we're talking about silhouette and corsetry. In this exhibition, we're talking about cultural appropriation because um, the designs have gone back from Venice to um, England to uh, India to um, China or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really, really complicated back and forth. Um, and but it's too confusing if you're, you know, if you're talking about it all at once, yeah. it's, it's gobbledygook. So you need to, you know, kind of like having a storyboard or reading a comic book, you, mm. you know, you have to have a clear, a clear Bite story. Bite-sized, bite-sized pieces. Yeah, but, and that's, you know, that's what's, but every piece is so rich depending on how you look at it. And that's really um, what we'd like to get across by doing different kinds of exhibitions, looking at things in different ways, is telling these stories in kind of a, kale a kaleidoscopic way through, our kaleidoscopic collection. We, in some ways, we are Google Images. We've got kind of <laughs> one of everything. Um, so our job is to, to pack it in a way that's um, bite-sized. Alexandra, thank you so much for being here. I think you know having the ROM be able to expose the cultural implications and relevancy of, of fashion and the clothes we wear, not just from a Western perspective, of course. We haven't even had a chance to talk about, you know, the, the other facets of the world where obviously fashion comes from. Another time, hopefully. But thank you so much for being here and I look forward to the chintz exhibit and to continuing to see the uh, beautiful collection that the ROM has yes, on display. Yes, and I hope people do come and see Iris van Hopen because it is very special and uh, you don't see these clothes. Uh, it's but absolutely they will be gorgeous if you haven't been. resonating in 10, 15 years in your wardrobe <laughs> from now. And it's, uh, it's on for another month at least, yes. is it not? Whatever. So go yes. see Iris Van Herpen. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for being here. I encourage everyone to head to the ROM. You can find out more about the exhibits at ROM Toronto. Uh, thank you very much for being here today. You can follow along with the fashion with Fashion Talks at Fashion Talks Pod. You can follow me at This Is Donna B. A big thank you to CAFA, our producing partner. You can find out more about the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards by following along at C-A-F-A-W-A-R-D-S.
big thank you to Toronto Fashion Week for having us here. And thank you to you, our audience, for being here and for spending time with us today. Until next time, this is Donna Bishop at Fashion Talks. And we do have time for some questions. Does anyone have any, have any questions for Alexandra about anything at the ROM or the exhibits? Oh, excellent. Here we have one. Hi, Dr. Palmer. Where do you go to look for exhibits when you're traveling? The question was, where do I go to look for exhibits when I'm traveling? Um, I don't really look for exhibits. I look at exhibits, and uh, I'm pretty wicked. Um, it's sort of busman's holiday, because yeah, I'm always looking at different kinds of things. So, I mean, wherever I am, I go to the museum. When I was in Cuba, I went to the Museum of the Resistance. It's a museum about fashion. Um, resistance fighters don't have a lot of silver furniture and fancy stuff, so it was these like boots with dirt on and sort of dirty old shirts. And it was so fascinating to me that these were the relics that survived. So, I mean, that's kind of an extreme example. I do go to the Met and Paris and everything, but um, you know, and it, it's not just doesn't have to just be a fashion exhibition, painting, ceramics, furniture, it's all there. It was all relevant, and in fact, some of the um, uh, exhibitions I see really help me with positioning ideas I have about fashion, coming from art or art history or different kinds of ways of putting th uh, things together and new scholarship. So, um, you know, the world's one big art exhibit. <laughs> oh, I'm coming to you doing my best, Tyra, Oprah. What is the best advice that you have for people that want to get back into modeling and be successful in modeling? I'm sorry, to get into modeling? Um, like in a more professional way, um, what is the best thing that they can do? To about being a fashion model? Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't hear very like well a, here. Like a successful fashion model? Um, right. Yeah. Well, one thing is it depends how you measure success. So that's your personal choice. Um, and Honestly, I'm not a very good person to talk to about that because I'm not involved in the industry. Um, I mean, the, some of the models I've spoken to who were Dior fashion models and stuff like that, it was really kind of luck. Um, I mean, it is a completely different industry now. People, modeling used to be <coughs> very different um, than it is today. So um, I'm sorry, it's not the best person. And you know, Instagram, is a powerful driver, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But you know, the the possibilities are really huge today. We have time for one more. Does anyone have one more question? So this is like two into integrated into one. When you're abroad and you see exhibits, what really hits home or intrigues you for as a curator uh, when you see things that other people have curated? What really inspires you from what other curators have brought into the museums that they work with? As well as what do you look for whenever you are curating? Um, <coughs> so uh, 
what kind of exhibitions do I like or, or turns my crank? I mean, I, I think it depends. I mean, I look at things in multiple layers. So I look at the artifact selection. Um, sometimes it's a no-brainer. Like if you're, if you're doing an Alexander McQueen show, for instance, you have to do a pretty terrible job to do a bad job with that exhibit. <laughs> because like, he is giving you it all on a silver yeah. platter. I'm not saying the exhibits weren't re beautifully done. But I mean, come on, those clothes are pretty amazing, right? Which is like, in fact, my Izzy Camilleri fashion, I wanted to call it, this is not Alexander McQueen. <laughs> because it was, you know, it's about how could, this is about the most difficult, not Alexander McQueen thing I could choose to do. But it's a, it's a sad subject, it's not sexy clothes, so very, very hard to engage people. And so someone who does a show like that or looks at the ordinary in a way that makes you think about it in a different way, uh, my hat is off to them because it's, that is incredibly hard to do. Um, um, but also seeing fantastic exhibitions like the, or the Heavenly Bodies at the Met, you know, I mean, I also know that they have a budget that I, will never ever ever have and none of my colleagues will ever have that budget either so you know they're the met they're in new york it's a unique thing they have anna um i mean it's like you can't compete with that because that's a unique world um places that have similar collections like um, boston or la or the galliera or you know people have real strengths in their collection it's fantastic when they really build on those so for us the chintz like that's one of our jewels in the crown we have one of the best collections in the world of this material absolutely fantastic so it's really great that we're going to see this um the christian dior collection is one of the best collections of that material from that period because i've done so much research on it and i can tell you more about it than just the dress i can tell you about the lady and and that window's closed um those people are no longer here. So, you know, new research uh, for me is following kind of the hippie trail, getting those people. Um, Toronto, you know, I have one dress in the collection I took in because it has this really cool label and it's batik and it relates to our batik collection and it's from the 70s and it's called Five Believers. And this, from doing research, links me back to Hurricane Carter and Toronto. I mean, this stuff is fantastically cool. So it's, you know, doing research, thinking about things, putting things together. And certainly, um, you know, the Iris Van Herpen show, when I saw that um, in Atlanta, and we are proposing to bring it to the museum, uh, that's a show, we're never going to do that. We don't have the collection. We can't possibly put a show like that together. So that's a show I would love, you know, and I'm thrilled it's here in Toronto. You will never see that anywhere, you know. It's really cool. You'll never see all that stuff together in one place. And then the Philip Beasley component is very important, I think, because he's Canadian and they have such a long collaboration. That distinguishes this exhibition from the other, as does the video and the filming of the dress and the making of the dress. So you get this idea from inception, conception to production and see it on the runway and those are the things that I think are really interesting and that often we we have the end product in the museum and sometimes I think a fashion museum is a, a pile of unsuccessful clothes and that's why they survive because um, if you really love something you wear it out <laughs> um, uh, 
but what's often missing is, you know, who made it? How did we get to that? Who did make that textile? How does it, and then how, how did it get to that person? Who were the mediators? Who were the stores? Who were the buyers? Who were those tastemakers? And why did that person choose it? What, what was so great about it for them? Because you can design whatever you want, but if nobody's going to buy it, it it's doesn't work. So if no what, one's what going to buy it, it doesn't work. I'm going to have to stop <laughs> us there because there are shows coming in here. Thank you so much for being here, everyone.